God for today. Foolish are those who fear nothing, yet claim to know everything. Hello Lunatics and welcome to episode 35 of the Grimdark Podcast. This is James. And this is Mike. If you're joining us for the first time, we're a podcast devoted to role-playing in the 41st millennium, using the gaming systems created by Fantasy Flight Games. Each episode we cover a different game system, and tonight's episode will be all about only war. But before we get too far into our episode discussion, we normally talk about our sort of fortnight in gaming. Uh, so Mike, I mean, all we really did this time was probably play your mage game. We had Black Crusade originally on our dance card, but that sort of... Yeah. Fell through. We put it off for a month. So yeah, unfortunately, yeah. we have to we have to bump that back because of people's work commitments and whatnot. Yep. So looks like we'll be skipping that for the moment. Yes. Picking that up again in the new month. Uh, yeah, just mage. Yep. So you think that went well, did you? Yeah, I think it went well. It had a little bit of a slow start, but it picked up speed once the temperature got to a bearable level. That's it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, being in the middle of the Australian summer here, which is probably also why. During our show tonight, you'll probably hear the sound of crickets in the background because we don't have a, uh, a recording studio, and unfortunately, right outside, I have a garden. But anyway, <laughs> so yeah, the, the heat did. Uh, it took it out of us for a while playing We're at, our, at our friend's house, and they only had pedestal fans. And yeah, I mean, it was a particularly hot and humid day. Yeah. It, it happens. It's not. It's nothing like hearing role players complain about physical exertion. You don't really get that sort of thing. No, not not often, <laughs> but the heat can certainly have an effect. That's it, yeah. But we're certainly um, we're, we're looking forward to playing Black Crusade again in the new month. And I think our GM sent out what three extremely long emails to go through. I haven't had a chance to see. Yes, read it yeah. Yet. Well, you... I've read through them all, and um, once I get a chance at work on a nice quiet day, I'll probably go through and, and write out the reply. Yeah, we, we actually have one of our players. Um, she's quite into tarot, and she decided having played with a few of the. Having played a few games now, she tried to liken each character in the game to a tarot card. Yeah. Uh, and I think she did a pretty good job of linking them up. And so now my next sort of Daz 3D project is to try and do tarot card faces of the characters as such. You know, tarot card so. versions of the characters? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I thought that might be a bit of fun to, you know, I always need new 3D projects. Actually, I've just seen uh, this last fortnight that you can now hook a 3D printer up to, uh, to Daz and do outputs direct to that. So. Yeah, I mean, maybe we could make our own miniatures or, you know, uh, nine-inch vinyl figures of our of our characters. I don't know. Yeah, that doesn't sound expensive at all. <laughs> That's it. I think what I worked out, that 3D printing is about 17 cents per cubic centimetre or something like that. Yeah, so. after you buy the printer for dollars. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, we're completely off topic, so let's talk about tonight's show. As I mentioned before, it is only war. Uh, we'll do our regular news section. Uh, we're going to be talking about the fear and insanity systems in Only War tonight, which really, I guess, goes across all the games, but we thought this would be a good one to focus on for Only War tonight. Uh, we're talking about the Minister and Priest yep. as a specialty. We'll do our plot hook section. Because we're out of Only War books to review, we're going to do a review of Warhammer 40k Relic, yep. the board game. Uh, then we're going to talk about a topic that a listener put forward, which is basically the idea behind player-created systems. So adding new mechanical systems to the game for your own reasons and how to sort of manage that. Yeah. Uh, then we'll do our regular community section and close out the show. So, Mike, without further ado, let's get into it. Yes. Command acknowledged. Accessing Imperial Archives. Okay, so news-wise, not a whole lot this week. I mean, there's been a lot of stuff happening from FFG. They've 
announced the next Star Wars book, the uh, Force and Destiny core book, and yep. a lot of other things. They released XCOM, which I've got, I'm very looking forward to playing. But when it comes to actual 40k stuff, uh, we had an announcement of a new expansion pack for 40k Relic. So, Halls of Terror is the new pack. Now, we'll talk more about Relic during our review. But for those of you who are already familiar with the product, Halls of Terror is a board expansion. So, for those of you who remember back to the original Talisman, um, I would liken it to the dungeon board from the original Talisman. So, without going too much into the details of Relic, because we'll be covering it later, uh, in order to complete the game, you need to at some point acquire a relic. You know, it's, it's, just called, it's just called Relic as such, or in the old Talisman game, it was called a Talisman. Uh, and that is, you can't finish the game without that. And so there are various mechanics for doing that in the base game. Yep. Uh, Halls of Terror is primarily the concept that your character in the game goes to Terror to try and petition one of the local key forces of the High Lords, so the Adeptus Sororitas or the Adeptus Custodes, for a relic that way. So it's an alternate methodology of getting a relic with its own risks and such as well. Uh, it does include an additional Nemesis character if you're playing... Nemes- with the Nemesis expansion, so that, that's in there as well, but uh, certainly looks interesting. Uh, you know, we're, we're having only really had a good go at Relic so far, not having played Nemesis yet, I can't really say too much about it, but yeah, look forward to seeing it. I'll certainly pick it up. You know, it looks interesting. Yeah. Uh, okay, so on to Games Workshop news. As you predicted, they've had some Harlequin figures released. Yeah. Uh, so limited stuff so far. I haven't seen a Codex yet either. Uh, or is the, it Codex? Uh, is it Codex co- electronic? Uh, will probably be electronic. I haven't really been following it because it's Harlequin stuff, and Harlequins aren't really my, you know, not really my cup of tea. Not your, not your bag, baby. No, no but a, a more interesting for for those of us who follow real armies. Uh, they're releasing some more chaos stuff, including a new Bloodthirster model, which is going to be a large, multi-part plastic model, which will be able to make three different types of Bloodthirster. Oh, nice. Yeah. But not, but not three bloodthirsters. No, not three bloodthirsters. <laughs> Definitely not no. three bloodthirsters. I can assure you. Uh, all right then, and uh, finally, in Eternal Crusade news, there's been a bit of a, a shake up at the Behaviour Studios um, offices. So uh, Miguel Caron, who was previously, I guess, one of the lead developers there, has uh, has left the Behaviour team as of the most recent live stream. Uh, they've also welcomed to the team uh, Nathan Richardson, who joins as the new senior producer. He replaces um, Stephanie Marchand. So Nathan comes from uh, EVE Online, uh, Dust514 and World of Darkness. So I guess everything that's come out of CCCP. Yeah. Um, or is it CCP, whatever it is. One is one is old, the old Russia. One is a company which makes computer games. Um, but he also worked on Defiance <laughs> as well. So... <laughs> You're yes, right yes, he comes from those who brought us the T50. <laughs> Carry on. Uh, anyway, we also worked on Defiance as well. So, I mean, I, I've played Eve, I've played Defiance. Um, I don't know what his role in those was, but obviously he's bringing whatever experience he took from those positions into Eternal Crusade. So, they had a nice picture on their Twitter this morning I looked at where they had one of their brainstorming sessions and they basically had the entire wall of an office with people sitting around it covered in post-it notes. Yeah. So it's good to see that brainstorming, you know, it's so much for uh, for, for diagrams or uh, or mind maps. It's just raw post-it notes. Yes. But uh, anyway, so we'll look forward to more details on that. Yep. Uh, that's a bit for the news, though. So okay. let's jump straight into our sort of the meat of our show. Knowledge is power. Hide it well. All right, so getting on to our only war topics. And tonight I wanted to talk about the fear and insanity system because... I know when I first picked up uh, Black, uh, Black Crusade, Dark Heresy when it first came out, 
and I saw there was a sanity system, and you know, it reminds me back of my days of playing Call of Cthulhu. I always like to see a good sanity system. Yeah. That being said, I mean, you've really got to tread very carefully as a producer when you create systems for fear and insanity, because at the end of the day, they are systems designed to take control of the character away from the player. Yeah. Yeah. Now it can be a lot of fun to to play with that, but some characters, well, some players also get quite upset when they're told. Well, no, you can't take part in this fight because you're currently in the corner vomiting. Yes. So, uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a very careful balance for yeah. the GM and for the writer as well. I think they did a pretty good job though because they've mostly made it a role playing effect. Uh, effect, you know, you lose sanity, so you gain insanity. Yes. Um, and it creates opportunities for role play, and it doesn't stop you from doing things. It just means that you're more likely to do other things. Yeah, I suppose exactly. when you actually fail a fear check and you're told, you know, you must run away from this opponent, that, that sucks a little bit, but it, it's understandable. Yeah, I mean, in a, in a grim, dark setting like 40k, I, I think it yeah. really does fit oh, the setting as well. So. Absolutely. All right, so let's break it down. Um, the fear mechanic is primarily based around the fear role. You know? yep. So um, lots of things can trigger a fear role. Can you give us some examples, Mike? Okay, um, seeing a demon. Yep. Easiest one. A monster or a creature with a fear rating. Yes. That's the easiest and most common example. Particularly horrible circumstances. Yep, particularly uh, horrible circumstances. dismembered corpses. Um, um, yeah, a particularly gruesome battlefield. Yep. A particularly weird event. Yep. You know, so seeing someone that you know to have been dead walking around alive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so not in itself like, like fear causing, but certainly horrifying to you know to, to a rational mind. Yeah, and I mean there, there are also slightly odder things as well, which can cause fear. You know, if you're an imperial guardsman and you're told you are going to go be facing in a battle against Abaddon's Black Legion, and Abaddon will be there. There's a good chance that most soldiers are going to feel a little bit soiled. Yeah, maybe maybe they might desert. Yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you mentioned there before about the the fear trait. So yeah. I mean, that's probably been the most common circumstances oh. that you will come across, which is several creatures or individuals as well have a fear rating. Yes. Right, so fear one, two, three, etc. Um, now there's a couple things to look at here. First off, anything above one should really cover supernatural fear. You know, so no matter how terrifying a commissar is, he's probably not walking around with a constant fear rating of three. He might have abilities that might boost his fear rating temporarily, yeah. but you know, he's simply not as terrifying as you know an open warp incursion with you know the, the forces of chaos spilling out before you. Uh, that says you're saying all oh, the supernatural type things, but I mean, oh, tyrannid. Yeah, I mean, they can be pretty terrifying. A Carnifex charging at you in battle is going to be more than fear. What? Okay, so when I say supernatural, let, let me put that another way. Um, things that you won't encounter in real life. Okay. Right. Yeah, so, you know, it's possible for a person to encounter a dead body, a scene of a massacre. You know, you probably don't... I hope, hope none of our listeners have to do that. Yeah. But certainly the things that the game considers to be fear one are things that we can... We, a person could... Could not expect to but may see in, in real life, you know. Yeah. A person is probably not going to see... A headless corpse rise from the grave and chase after them. Uh, you know, a bloodthirster, uh, you know, on, on the edge of a battle as such. It's unlikely. If you do, maybe let us know, flick us an email, and then maybe seek psychiatric help. Yeah. But uh, you know, the, the options are there. Uh, okay. So the fear rating uh, has the effect that when you make that fear roll, now the fear roll, of course, is basically just a willpower test. Yep. Um, so if it's fear rating one, 
It's a straight willpower test. Fear rating 2, it's a minus 10. Fear rating 3, it's a minus 20, etc. Now, I'm trying to remember, did they change this in Dark Heritage 2nd Edition? So there was a fear rating of 0, which is, which is minus 0, and then fear rating 1 was a penalty. So I've, no, I've noticed with some of the traits in Dark Heresy 2nd Edition, like, for example, um, the toxic quality. You have toxic 0, which to- still does the damage, but your toughness test is at plus it, it, 0. It, yeah, your toughness test isn't modified. No, uh, as far as I'm aware, the fear test is still the same. Oh. Sorry? <laughs> we can pause it a second and have a look if you want. No, it's, I mean, it's all right. It's all right. It sure. I mean, Off the it, top of my head, I'm pretty sure it's still Fear 1, 2, 3, 4. That's right. We're talking about, we're talking about only war here. In definitely yep. only war, Fear 1 is plus 0. Fear 2 is minus 10, etc., etc. Yeah. Uh, so that's it. So you basically, you know, you make, you, you're calling to make a willpower test by your GM. Uh, and he'll say, this thing has Fear rating 2, so you're rolling willpower at minus 10. Now, keep in mind, of course, that Imperial Guard characters are not high and powerful characters I'll probably have a willpower score somewhere between about 30 and 50 so by the time you factor 30 in 30 if you're lucky yeah by the time you factor in a creature with a even fear rating 2 at minus 10 that's going to bring your chances down substantially probably by about 10% but uh, as, as a factor of your total ability it, it's yep. a considerable thing um, but that being said there are a few things that are just fear checks and the major- majority of those are actually talents yeah so let's go through some of those uh, frenzy you know, when you are frenzied, you are immune to fear. That's it. You know, no, yeah. no, no rolls. You've got other problems going on at the time, but you know, fear isn't one of them. Uh, fearless, obviously. Also completely immune to fear. Uh, okay, uh, into the jaws of hell. This allows you to make your comrades immune to fear. Yes. So, um, I mean, some of these talents change a bit for only war because obviously comrades is something exclusive to only war, but it does specifically call out Comrades, with a capital C, are immune to fear. Yeah. Uh, Iron Discipline. So when your PC fails a fear check, your comrade only fails if you roll a double on that fear check. So otherwise... So it's possible that you will fail the fear check and your comrade will still continue. Yeah, or slap you out of it maybe. Yeah. (laughs) That's it. But otherwise, when a PC fails a fear check, the comrade automatically is considered to fail as well. The worst case scenario, your comrade steps in the way of that chainsaw coming for you and buys you another round. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Jaded, one of you know, I always like to get for characters, it basically makes you immune to fear from normal sources as such, you know. So normal sources can include, well, what, what I described basically for okay. fear one before, so. Actually, it, it's specific. It says non-supernatural sources. Yeah. So demons, not covered. Yeah. Tyranid monstrosity, is covered. Yeah. Because it's, it's horrible, but it's not demonic. Yeah, scenes of violence, you scenes know, depravity, etc. No problem at all. Charging Olgrin. What yeah. about what about that supernatural weirdness? Like once again, seeing somebody you know to be dead. I'd say that that wouldn't be covered. Okay, yeah, I think it's fair. No, I mean, it's, it's hard to get it's hard to desensitize yourself towards that sort of thing. It, it is. It is. I mean, you. It's, it's a hard one because, like we're saying, you know, a tuned monstrosity is borderline. Yes. I, I suppose it'd be up to the GM to say yes or no. Exactly. All right, uh, Radiant Presence. So allies with, uh, within 20 metres gain plus 10 on fear checks. Yep. Now, this says allies, so that would include PCs It does and include comrades. PCs, but it also includes enemies. Yes. If you read it specifically, it says anyone. Okay. It says anyone in ten, in the range. Yeah, 20 metres. Okay. Yeah. Is, is bonus. So it can actually, if you cause fear, <laughs> cause some problems. Yes. <laughs> Uh, resistance, uh, obviously fear is one of the uh, focuses you can take resistance, which basically gives you plus 10 on your fear tests. Yep. Uh, and unshakable faith. 
allows you to re-roll fail fear, fear tests. tests. So, you know, a few things you can use there to boost your character's chances of passing that important fear roll. Yep. Um, now, something that was new to Only War when it comes to fear is the terrify special use of the command skill. Yeah. And this is basically the concept that some soldiers are trained that no matter how horrible the enemy is, their commanding officer or their commissar is even more horrible, you know, or that they, they, they'd rather face that horrible monstrosity than they would face the commissar who'd be at their back if they turn around and run. Yeah, they know full well that commissar will put a bolt in their back if they try and run away. That's it. So, um, as a reaction, you can use a com- you can make a command test that is opposed by the fear causing creature's willpower. Yep. Um, and both sides apply modifiers for fear rating. So, say for example, you have no fear rating, your commissar is zero fear, and you make your command test at plus zero versus a creature, say with fear one, is making their command their willpower test. Well, is it, is it use the plus zero still as well from fear one? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it need to be fear two for you actually. Fear, fear two for you to start starting penalties. This is one of the main things because there's actually one of the abilities that you can buy as a commissar yep. early on. Um, with your starting XP, if you wish, is the ability to count as causing fear two for terrify rolls. Yeah, so, so that's it. That's yeah. the whole point, really. Now, one thing that the terrify action doesn't make any mention of is what happens if the circumstance causing fear is not a creature with a fear rating and a willpower score to roll against. Like you know, I, I can certainly think of circumstances where people are rolling against fear of the situation, but the terrify action could still be used to offset that. Yeah, I guess it's going to come down to GM fear. I'd, I'd such, probably but... say as a GM that if the person can pass the roll, it just works. Yeah. Yeah. yeah maybe maybe with a pen- maybe if it's like a fear two, you might apply a minus 10 yeah. penalty to there. Or I'd say, yeah, but you actually have to role play it out. You actually have to role play out your use of the terrify skill. And depending on your use, I'll give you a modifier. And if you pass, it works. If you fail, it doesn't. That's it. Okay, so come back to the fear roll itself. So... You know, you've worked out your modifiers for their fear rating. You've applied your talents. Someone's tried to terrify you out of it, but you're still making the roll. Uh, on a success, you're sweet. Nothing goes wrong. You act completely normally. Yep. There's no need to make further tests against that creature unless something new enters the, the field of play or potentially their fear rating changes because there are some abilities that cause creatures to unnaturally increase their fear rating. Would you make the call to... Make a player re-roll if, it, if something they've already passed against fear increases? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I would. Right. Um, I guess if you wanted to be fair, you might only make a fear test against the difference. So if they go from fear 2 to fear 3, uh, that's I, a 1 increase, so it's only a see, minus 10. It, it depends what's caused the fear rating to increase, because to increase in fear ratings are pretty, is, is going to be a pretty major event. If... You know, you're fighting against some mad cultist who had fear one, and then suddenly they split open and a demon bursts out of their fleshy remains who's got fear three. I'd say no, you're testing against fear three straight up from the get go. Okay, no, you're not going. Well, that demon was only a cult a few minutes ago. He can't be that strong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it depends what caused the fear increase. Um, but I'd say counts as a new bar. Okay, no worries. So when you do fail, um, there's number of things that can happen. Firstly, if you have failed the test by three degrees of more or more, you gain straight away D5 insanity points. And, yep. and we'll come back to the effects of insanity in a moment. But that, that is a straightaway thing. Secondly, if you are um, 
uh, if you're not in combat at the time you fail a fear check, then the effect is you take a minus 10 penalty on all skills that require concentration. So that's anything with a concentration subtype. Yeah. Now, this is something that we've sort of always... Uh, I mean, in the games I've run, I, I've, I've, I've always sort of missed this point. And, because yeah. when you're in combat, what you do is you roll on the shock table then. Yeah. Uh, and I've always said, okay, regardless, roll on the shock table. So, Michael, we are talking before the show, you mentioned case in point, playing uh, Roll20 uh, Dark Heresy game. Yep, my the, character failed his first fear check. Which well, is when, we, when you saw the guy pulling his own eyes out. Yep. Not a combat action. You yep. fell to the ground vomiting at the scene as such. Where. Yep. Realistically speaking, you shouldn't have had to make a shock test because you weren't in combat. Yeah, so I would have just been at minus 10 penalty to all concentration actions. Um, honestly, I don't see a problem with that. It depends on the situation as to which way you want to go. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, as a GM, I would probably still, for those sorts of circumstances, I might still look at the shock table or make a roll on it, but I might not enforce, like, for example, there's no reason your character would rip out your Warhammer and start attacking madly the person who you've just seen pulling their eyes out. That's not that's not a fear reaction, that's a, a madness reaction more it, so, it, so. Exactly, and it depends on what's caused it. It's very rare that you're going to walk into a room of a brutal murder and suddenly suffer a heart attack and keel over dead because you failed your shock <laughs> test really badly. Yes. Um, so I think the GM should probably have a look at the shock table. I mean, for some of the lower results, like to vomiting I mean it fits Yeah, it fits so there's no reason to or leaving the it. scene for example leaving the scene you know you, you step into the room you get overwhelmed a bit you step outside you take a breather then you come back in that's right anything that you think would be a natural reaction stick with it there's, I don't see a problem with that that's it uh, now we mentioned the shock table there so when you are in combat and you fail you do roll on the shock table and you add plus 10 to your roll for every degree of failure on the original willpower test yeah. So the chart does, does go to 171, and of course, as you mentioned, at the highest point, your character kills over kills dead. over dead. Basically, it's just so shocking you have a heart attack, and that's it. Myocardial infarction, you're gone. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, it's all sorts of things. It'd be pretty difficult to roll that. Yeah. You'd have to have what 30 willpower and roll 100. <laughs> now I noticed that uh, looking through the shock chart in Only War, there are no shocks that cause insanity so in previous game systems the shock table actually included insanity point gains and i guess this was all sort of rolled into the fact that if you fail by three degrees or more you're going to get d5 insanity insanity. exactly right all right so a lot of those effects will say you are doing this until you snap out of it yeah you know so you're on the ground vomiting it might might say number of rounds or it might say until you snap out of it you're frozen to snap out of it you run away until you snap out of it so what is snapping out of it uh, essentially, each round after the first, yep. you get to make another willpower roll. At no modifier. Yeah, that's the thing I noticed was that you don't apply the modifier. You don't of the apply the original modifier. You know, it, the initial massive scare is gone, so it's just a pass a roll. Yep. If you pass a roll, you snap out of it. That's if it. You and fail the roll, you're still under. That's it. And there's no more shock rolls or anything. It says no. you, doesn't matter how badly you foul that roll, you're still just doing whatever it was it says you're doing until you step out of it. Yeah. All right, so that's really the fear side of it. Let's now look at the insanity side. Okay. Oh, and I suppose something we should probably mention is if an an enemy has the warp shock ability and you fail your fear test, you also suffer a number of corruption points equal to their fear rating. That's right, yes. I've got that that, that, in my notes. Okay. Okay, I I thought that was part of the insanity side, so... I think that's not really insanity. That's corruption. All right, no worries. Okay. Okay. All right, so... um, So, insanity... 
as you mentioned before, insanity is a growing scale. It starts at zero and it accrues all the way to 100. Yep. And at 100... You go insane. That's it. You are terminally... It's it. I think the, the term of the book is terminally insane. Yes. So you are no longer a playable character, basically. You're... you're you're you know, in a white padded room writing civil signals on the wall yeah. with your own blood. I mean, I suppose this is a major difference between this game's insanity system and most other games. Yeah. Most other games have some sort of stat that you use to work out what your insanity level is. Yes. Whereas with this game, everyone has the same insanity maximum cap. The main difference is if you've got... It's double dipping, essentially. If you've got... High willpower. High willpower. Yeah you'll fail less, you will lose less insanity. Whereas in other systems, if you've got high will willpower equivalent, you fail less and you've got more of the resource as well, which it's like toughness in, in Rogue Trader, which we mentioned before. It seems a bit like double dipping. So I think that's a nice balancing mechanic that they brought in, that it's out of 100. Exactly right. Uh, so every time your character gains a new level of 10, so you go from 9 to 10 points, from 19 to 20, etc. Yep. Uh, you are supposed to test willpower against uh, the chance of gaining a trauma. So if you look at the chart for uh, for insanity, it does indicate there are modifiers to the trauma roll for different levels. So yep. it's, it's easier to gain traumas at, as you go more and more insane, basically. So yep. it's a minus t- or plus 10, I should say, early on. Then it goes to a zero, then a minus 10, etc. Yeah. Now... A trauma is basically a short-term mental response, I guess. So it could include things like temporary phobias, you know, um, speech issues, just lingering effects of fear that occur after the initial sign of fear has passed, basically. A good example I like to think of as trauma is that for anyone who's ever watched the movie Predator. Yep. The character who starts using a razor on his face yes. to just start shaving for no apparent reason draws dry shaving his face. Yep. Can't remember what's the character's name. Oh, I can't remember either. Oh. To... Anyway, I've got the movie. You're gonna yeah. pull out afterwards and we'll have a watch. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's a good example. It's a minor thing. It's not going to have a huge effect. It's just more of a role playing thing. Some of the traumas do have a huge effect. Like you cannot talk for the next D five days. Yeah, that's it. Which can cause big problems if it's someone like the sergeant. Yeah. I mean, look, at my work uh, about a year ago, I was asked to give some training to our front of house staff about what to do if there is an armed hold-up or an armed robbery or even just an irate customer at the front of the building. And so I went through all the various stuff to do and I said, okay, now let's talk about what we do after it's over, you know, because there are lots of long-term or short and long-term effects of an adrenaline rush. Yeah. You know, your body flushes um, endorphins and sugar into the system to try and, you know, recover from that. And that has its own effect. You know, I was saying to people, you know, make sure they sit down, make sure they drink plenty of water, don't give them soft drink, you know. Um, And importantly, you can, some people experience a massive rush of emotion after a traumatic situation, you know. So, you know, Grown men who feel like they're tough guys and burst into tears after having been in a, you know, a, a violent or near-violent situation. So I find in some ways the, the trauma system represents these sorts of things as well, as the fact that the body has certain autonomic responses to a, a fear control. reaction, yeah, basically. Something yeah. you have no control over. Exactly. Um, okay, so the, fear, the, sorry, the trauma chart is rolled on when you fail the, the test. Once again, with a plus 10 modifier per degree of failure on the willpower test. 
I'd probably say, and this is something that I highly recommend, that the GM actually make this role away from the player's view. Yeah. Not just because it's something that you want to surprise the players with. But, but it can derail It the can game. derail a game, so sometimes you may want to fudge the result just a little bit. Yeah. Once again, um, the person that can't talk for a long time, if they are the group's primary face and the, and the cover behind which the group are currently operating... It can, make, it can have a major, major impact on the game. And, and sometimes that can be fun. And sometimes it can be really terrible. Yeah, I mean, it comes back once again to the whole concept of taking control of the character out of the player's hands. Yeah. And some people don't enjoy that. Exactly. Uh, Now, something that I've also done wrong in the past is that traumas only begin at the end of the encounter during which the insanity was actually caused. Yeah. So you don't test for the trauma when you first see the bloodthirster. You know, you have the initial fear check... You wet your pants and run away. You come back. You fight the bloodthirster. You win. Everybody celebrates their victory. And then afterwards, you... You're struck mute. Yeah, that's right. Yes, you go, I just got a bloodthirster. I just got a... That's it. (laughs) Anyway. um, The duration of the trauma is dependent upon the trauma rolled. It's covered in in each each result of the trauma chart. I'd just like to point out, if you're powerful enough to kill a bloodthirster, you're probably not going to be failing the fear test. No, you can have a very high strength and weapon skill and toughness, but a very low willpower. I suppose it's possible. Okay, carry on. Exactly. Um, All right, so the other effect of insanity is that at 40, 60, and 80 points of insanity, you then gain a mental disorder. Yeah, and this isn't a might gain a mental disorder. You will gain. There's no test. It's just bang, you gain it. Yeah. Um, and they go, so you start off with a, a minor one at 40, a severe one at 60, and an acute one at 80. Yeah. Um, now, the disorder itself is not rolled for on a chart. It is decided by the GM, and I would say in consultation with the player. Yeah. Yeah. I think that you really need to think about that character's mindset when it comes to working out what the disorder is. Yeah. You know, so. You know, a person who has been the classic sort of layabout, never really does anything strenuous, you know, violent, unpredictable type is probably not going to develop OCD, yeah. for example. It's just not in their sort of style as such. Exactly. Um, but yeah, it's something to work on. Now, there's no reason that any particular disorder could be either a minor, severe or acute. You could have a minor phobia, a severe phobia, a phobia or an acute phobia. What it affects is that when you have when these disorders come into play and you want to overcome them, the level of the uh, uh, the disorder affects the, the test. So it's plus 10 on the willpower test to avoid it if it's minor, plus 0 if it's severe, minus 10 if it's acute. Yep. And this is, this is with your character then for life. So, you know, these are they're a big part of the character. That's why I think that just flippantly thinking of, oh, okay, now you're deathly afraid of bloodthirsters because you just fought one. You know, you, you can probably do a lot more with that. You know, like maybe it's a sign of blood or, you know, you come up with sounds that you might associate with a bloodthirster or that sort of thing that is what your character has their disorder yeah. about. Um, once, and I mentioned before, once you gain 100 insanity, you are removed from play. Now, you did mention Warp Shock before and, of course, Warp Shock in Only War only applies when insanity is gained from creatures of the warp. So just failing the willpower test for fear is not enough to trigger warp shock. You have to actually have failed by three degrees in order to get the insanity from a creature of the warp, which in turn then gives you corruption equal to the fear rating of the creature, as you said. 
Yeah. So that, that's why I sort of kept it to that, uh, oh, okay. that, 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 that insanity party. So there is method to my madness, but then again, I don't, I don't always get around to sharing these things with you before I show. No, it, no, so no, no. That's it. So any final thoughts, Mike, on fear and insanity? Um, I think that it's probably a good idea to make sure that you do a fair bit of this behind your GM screen. Yes. Um, certainly available let, in all good game stores. Yeah, certainly let the players roll for their fear check. Let them roll for their shock check. But for the traumas, particularly, I'd say probably you want to roll those. Yeah. Um, and really put a lot of thought into what their disorders could be, probably in advance, well before they ever get to the... the 40, 60, 80 marks. 40, 60, yeah. 80 marks. Um, have a good idea. By then, by the time they get to 14... No one's going to get to 14 sanity in their first couple of sessions. You know, you're going to have plenty of time observing the players and their characters to pick out what you think would probably happen to these characters along the way. Yeah. You know, someone who's always gruff and aggressive may end up becoming just a little bit too gruff and aggressive. You know, a, a tech priest who's always going on about the, the, the will of the machine god and all this stuff might start cutting off even more of his body to replace with cybernetics to become even stronger. Yeah. All those sorts of things. So, you know, you'll generally have a good idea well beforehand. That's it. I mean, I've always thought of this system... Insanity and fear being part and parcel with corruption, yep. probably because of that connection through Warp Shock and the fact they tend to go one after the other in the book. But I think we might save corruption and mutation for Another. A, a later show. Yeah, yeah, right, definitely, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so that's fear and insanity. Let's um, let's move right along, shall we? Yep. All supplicants report to the administrator for career assignment. Okay, so just in the break there, which may have seemed very short for you, but was a bit longer for us, we decided to do a bit of looking up in the books, and we looked at first off. In only war, radiant presence, just to verify Mike's well, statement. Yeah. Yep. So it does say everyone within range is bolstered, uh, but it also below that says allies within range get the benefit. The character does not. Yeah. So you know, Fish, if you're listening, you know, as the producer of this book, feel free to send us an email just to let us know where. It does it goes. affect the enemies? That's it. Yep. And uh, the other one we looked at was uh, the fear rating in, in Dark Age Edition, and, and Mike was right, so it does go 1 to 4 once again. 1 is plus 0, 2 is plus or minus 10. Minus 20, minus that. Exactly right, yeah. So it still has, there's no, there's no fear 0 in Dark Age Edition. So there you go, feel educated. Um, on to our career discussion. And okay. we're talking today about the Ministorium Priest, advanced specialty for Only War. So uh, what is the role of the Ministorium Priest in Only War? I basically broke it down into three specific activities that they're, they're built around. The first one is they are there to strengthen the resolve and faith of the unit. Yeah. Now, these roles also traditionally fall under the commanding officer and under the commissar. But I mean, the commissar, once again, the faith side, because commissars are raised partially by the ministerium. But certainly the priest is there as the spiritual guide for the, the, for, unit. For the unit itself. That's right. Um, secondly, their role is there to castigate the enemies of the Imperium, you know, is to make sure that the appropriate people are set fire to, um, you know, the, the litanies of hatred are, are read to the warriors of the Imperium to ensure that the enemies fall beneath their flak-booted feet. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, they also act as confessors, both to the men at such, you know, give the, give the men the the... Ability, well, I suppose, to investigate the, their own men for corruption as well, but also to seek out that corruption within anyone they might deal with as well. So they are also, they have that sacred duty of the church of ensuring that the Imperium remains pure as well. 
Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Mike, is that you agree with those three things? Do yeah, you? I, I'd say that that covers the majority of it. I, I think the strengthening the resolve and the faith of the men, the, the first point you mentioned, is probably the most important. That's it. And it's probably the one which you're going to be doing the majority of the time. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, the Minister and Priest is one of the few advanced specialties that actually gets a comrade. Yep. In the form of the curate, or curate, curate, curate. Yep. Uh, who I guess is basically just a junior priest. Yeah. You know, someone, you know, the, the person that carries that heavy book, or... Uh, you know, Giant Aquila. Yeah, the fuel pack for your heavy flamer. Etc. Yeah. Etc. Et you know, they're yeah. all things. The, the that... giant golden casket with a bone of somebody who might have been a saint. Exactly right. Yeah. They're, they and you know when the priest falls, I guess the curate has the opportunity to step, step up, up and and take on the role as well. Yeah. So let's talk about building a minister and priest. Um, going through the characteristics, I think that with most characters, it's going to depend on which way you go, and certainly the priest is the same. But I put down fellowship. As, as probably the most important one. Yeah, they do get access to a lot of social abilities. Yeah. That being said, if you want to go for the hard as nails... You Red know, Redemptions yeah, type. That's right. Maybe Fellowship's not your strongest point, but yeah. Yeah, certainly I think it does fit with most priests. Uh, willpower. I think that more so than intelligence, you know, that that drive is, is quite important for a priest the, the way I always look at it with willpower and intelligence for the minister and priest is sort of like they don't know what it is that they hate they just know that they hate it with all their heart and soul that's it yes um, but that being said intelligence also is I think worthwhile especially because some of the priest options are quite law driven as well and there aren't a lot of intellectual roles within the imperial guard except for the tech, the tech priest engines here as well yep. so certainly intelligence is not a bad one for them and I guess weapon skill. You know, they are first and foremost into the, into the fray. They don't tend to stand back and watch yes. their forces fall upon yeah. the blade's enemy. They get right in there. That, that's true. Plus the fact that the majority of weapons they will be shooting are flamers, which don't require much ballistics. That's right, yes. Point and click. All right, so let's look at some skills. Uh, I guess charm, you know, if yeah. you want to go down that path, is that they, you know, more so than command... For a soul, for for a commander, for example, they're going to have charm. They may have command as well. They are good at also leading leading troops through their through their charisma. Yep. Uh, but also things like interrogation and intimidate, especially for that confessor role. And you know the the terrify or well, terrifies actually a command action. But anyway, it's yeah. same sort of concept. Still a nice idea. Uh, linguistics. I think that they're going to be one of those characters that probably has both low and high gothic. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially to go through those ancient tomes that are. Padlocked to their to their belts, for example, that might be in high gothic. Parry, if you are going to go weapon skill, that's probably a decent defensive skill to have. Yep. Um, and I think law skills. You know, they if you're going that that wrath path, I mean, you certainly want to have things like common law, ecclesiarchy, and imperial creed and scholastic laws the same as well. But you may dabble into forbidden laws, forbidden law mutants or heretics or those sort of things. Just to yep. you, know, you have to know what it is to kill it potentially. Yeah, I'd agree with all those. Yeah. Yeah, I can't think of anything which particularly jumps out as you should definitely try and get hold of this. Um, I'd say that that's probably the majority of it. Yeah. For skills. Um, okay, so talents. Now, I'll start with the ones from the main book first. But, okay, so things like uh, Error of Authority, which allows you to use your command skill on your fellowship bonus times 100 people rather than just 10. Yeah. So quite significant in early war compared to the other systems. 
Which then, of course, goes into Inspire Wrath, which lets you effectively grant hatred yeah. to followers. Which is, I have to say, Inspire Wrath is the absolute, you know, that is exactly what this class is. Exactly right, for. yeah. Yeah. And Master Orator, which allows you to use Charm or Intimidate on your Fellowship Bonus times 100 as well, as well as Command. Yeah. Um, I think that when you come to combat skills, things like Berserk Charge, yeah. for that sort of you know, rabid run into combat with the Eviscerator held high. Uh, gives you a plus 30 on a charge rather than plus 20. Uh, also, Frenzy. I think that, you know, I can see lots of priests frenzying. Yeah. And uh, Battle Rage, of course, so you can still parry while you're frenzying because you're probably not quite as hardy as your standard melee guardsman as such, especially if you're wearing primitive chainmail armor or the well, like. Well, like I said, I mean, if you're using an eviscerator, you're not going to be parrying anyway. That's true. Okay. Um, hatred, always good for a priest, especially if you want to have Inspired Wrath to transfer that hatred to others. Yep. Um, Iron Discipline and Into the Jaws of Hell we mentioned before we are talking about fear I think that when it comes to leading other forces to not respond to fear that they fit in quite well yep. Jaded I think that that would fit well with a priest Peers if you're going to have the social skills it helps to have those peers like with yeah, the I, I think priests I think they fit peers quite well you, yeah. you're likely to have a few peers uh, Radiant Presence as well yep. I think it fits with the priest and of course Unshakable Faith um, now, of course, um, Sword of Humanity also introduced some new talents, many of which you can see are clearly specifically for priests. So you go through things like um, uh, Aspire to Vengeance. So whenever a PC or comrade dies, you add plus three to the damage, to your crit damage of Righteous Fury for the rest of the encounter. Yeah. So, which is quite significant. Yeah, especially when there's a commissar in the group who can, exor- who can, who can um, execute comrades for you. Yeah, just stop, stop <laughs> bumping those bonuses up. That's right. Um, Blessing of Flame. So as a foreign action, you can sanctify the fuel in a flame weapon. Yep. Not necessarily the one you're using as well. You can bless, you know, your your heavy gunner or your um, weapon specialist's flamer as well. Or your Hellfire tank. Yes, that's right. That's true. Yeah. Um, okay, so Confessor. Interesting one. So this one, whenever your allies spend... XP to remove insanity. They gain one. They, they actually regain one additional point per hundred XP spent. Yeah. So it's rare I see people actually using XP to, to buy off insanity. But yeah, those I think this do, is probably something we should have mentioned in the insanity section that you can lower your insanity at hundred XP per point. Yeah, good thing it's the same. The same episode. Same, same pop the episode. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so yeah, that is true. Yes, you can reduce your insanity. I, I think that as a GM, I would be saying. I don't just want to see, okay, I spent 100 points to take a point off. I'd like to see how that's recovered in play as well. Yeah. For example, talking to the Confessor. Yes. You know, or something along those lines. Um, Litany of Condemnation. Uh, so this one fits nice with the Terrify. So this means you gain three additional degrees of success on the Terrify action when it's used against demons and creatures of the war. Yep. Um, relic Bearer. So you gain a Relic item as a standard kit like that aforementioned finger bone of a saint in a giant metal coffer yep um strength of the creed so whenever you spend a fate point to gain a plus 20 plus 10 bonus you gain a plus 30 bonus instead so quite a powerful ability um stuff not the work of heretics gives you it lets you add your willpower bonus to penetration uh against targets of hatred or the things that they have built um so fortifications etc uh, and you, you can also extend that ability to followers if you have 
the Inspire Wrath talent as well. Yeah, this is actually quite a good talent. Yeah, it, 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 is, it, it is very it, much a capstone it, talent as yeah, well. It's quite, it's, quite a lot of requirements. Yeah, it has a lot of requirements, but it's deceptively powerful, this one. It, it's sort of one where you flick it and you go, eh. But then you really think about what you're granting, especially if this is a confessor talking to a hundred times his fellowship bonus. <laughs> which, which you have to have in order to have the, this Inspire Wrath. Yeah, that's exactly. right. You've got to have error authority. So Yeah, you know, um, you can... Get an entire army pretty much doing some major penetration and actually being able to kill space marines with laser gu- las guns. Yep. Well, sorry, traitor space marines with las guns. <laughs> That's right. Uh, prov- provided you have um, hatred at space marines. <laughs> well, I guess hatred, hatred traitors or something like those lines. Yeah, hate, hatred yeah. Uh, traitor marines plus all the other things. You know, That's it, it's yeah. unlikely, but it'd give you a chance. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one with a great name, thunderous castigation. Um, so you can roll command minus 20 to gain fear one, uh, which you increase by one per three degrees success to a maximum of fear three. Yeah. So not nice little ability there. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, urge the penitent. So when you gain, uh, when you, when you, when you spend a fate point to make a re-roll, you actually get a plus 10 bonus to the re-roll. And you can actually also confer this bonus to an ally in communication range as well. Yeah. So you want to give a bonus for rerolls too. So some nice extra abilities there from... Yeah, the, I mean, priests make a good support class. They do. Yeah. You don't have to be great at everything. You can help other people be good at the things they do as well with some of these talents. Exactly. Definitely worthwhile. All right, so advanced specialties also from the same book. You've got the incinerate priest. So this is your red redemptionist, your... You know, let the galaxy burn type that uh, answers to no one except for his own driving desire to burn the enemies of the Emperor. And the Emperor. And the Emperor, yes. <laughs> um, okay, the uh, Presenter of Penance. So I guess this is your... Um, uh, the, the person surrounded by penitents seeking to... You know, sends you know, people bound in chains to spend their lives against the enemies of the Imperium. For a chance at redemption. Exactly right. Um, the Prelate at Arms, I guess, is sort of your default. I'm one man with my faith and my Warhammer against, you know, the... The, the Crusader type. I That's think. right, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And finally, the um, the Rector Erudite. So, basically, your intellectual priest, the, your, your law master as such, yeah. Yeah. Similar to, I guess, the Adept from the old Dark Heresy thing, so... Yeah. yeah, a few good options there. Quite All quite different as well, which is quite yeah, nice. Yeah, that's it. They're all very different. Yeah. So, a few things to think about when you're playing a Minister and Priest. First thing I put down was, um, you need to work out, are you a boon or a bane to your brothers? Like, you know, do your men see you as the guiding light, their friend, the person that, you know, they want to get behind in the um, uh, in the battle or are you just like another commissar the, the person they don't want to have behind them you know the one who will, who is watching for every failure on their part every lapse in faith in order to bring down burning justice upon them as such yeah uh, you know work out where you're going to sit in your group in, in that respect um, you know be that ever watchful eye as well to me even when you are on good terms with your men you know at the end of the day you are the eyes, ears, and executing arm of the Ministorum in the Astra Militarum, basically. And so, therefore, you are there to exercise the Grand Emperor's will. And finally, I don't say this a lot with priest characters in these games, but bring the fire. You know, we always say, oh, you don't want to play a Red Redemptionist or a, a too heavy, heavy-handed missionary because 
It's not going to make him any friends. Only war is not a game about making friends. It's about destroying the armies opposed to the Imperium. So here's a good chance to be a priest and get your flame on and have a good time overdoing it. Yeah. You know, it's, if something's worth doing with a priest, it's worth overdoing. Yeah. One thing I'd like to add is remember the fact that your priest is not a member of the Imperial Guard. That's true. You are not a member of the Imperial Guard. So although you exist within the command structure, kind of, you take orders, you take them because it's more of a hassle to not take them. Yes. Um, but at the end of the day, if the Commissar tells you to do something and you don't want to do it, you don't have to do it. And there's nothing he can do to make you do it. Yeah. So just for people jamming games with a minister and priest in their game, I will point out that if you look at the... I don't know about the current army list, but for the last army list for the Imperial Guard, you had to take a priest if you wanted to... I think actually it was in the systematic... If you wanted to deploy a, a penitent engine. Penitent engine, yeah. yeah. So you know, if you have got a priest in the group, maybe sometime just for fun, give him command of a penitent engine. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's really nothing quite so extreme. Arco flagellants. Yes. <laughs> can be a lot of fun for the player. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's move on. Okay. Attention, loyal servants of the Imperium. Stand by to receive orders. All right, so on to our plot hook section, and I put together an only war plot hook. Now, Mike, you tell me you've also got one as well. Yeah, so. yeah you do yours first. Okay, and... so we'll do mine first. So I put down, the regiment has just won a fierce ground battle against its enemies, and now the time has come to take stock of the losses. The body of a key figure in the guard, a commissar, officer, or priest, is found among the dead, and disturbingly it appears that he was killed from behind with a guard weapon. Who would want this person dead, and how do, how do they get away with it in the middle of a battle? Are the PCs involved? And if not... Are they implicated? What if some dark forces engineered the murder to cast the Astro Militarum into chaos before a counterattack? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. so, your thoughts first off, Mike? Um, certainly good for an investigation-based adventure. Or an adventure where the characters are implicated. Maybe they've had negative dealings with this character in the past. Yeah, that, that, I was, Never I was thinking enough that. To make them want to actually kill the person. Or maybe it's perceived negative dealings. Like this is a commissar who's always giving them a tough time. But has always actually let them get away with it. In which case other people might go, well, they've got reasons to hate this commissar. But they're actually quite on good terms with this person. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, that, that's, that, that's exactly the thing I thought of when I thought of this concept. Was I would certainly be doing it in such a way that, uh, you know, I'd, I'd be saying... Yes, this is a guy you've always had troubles with, but you've always managed to bite your tongue and move on. But suddenly, you know, he's dead, and everyone knows that you've always had a problem with him, and so their their eyes turn to you, to you first, definitely. I mean, it, 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 I think that you won't get many investigation style games in an only war campaign, yeah. and this is one way of doing it. I mean, you can certainly, if you go back through our episodes, to uh, we had one of our early um, Dark Heresy episodes. It was. I can't remember which episode it was now, maybe six or so, when we, when we covered the arbitrator. Yeah. We had a whole bit in that on, the, you know, I guess the concepts of investigation in, in a... Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, the, the stages of an investigation and what you should be looking for. Exactly right, yeah. yeah. So, you know, hopefully that might also help give some ideas as to how you would do an investigative game as well. But certainly I think that this could be an interesting concept to have, you know... And I guess even if you go down that path of maybe it's more than just someone with a grudge... Maybe this is a planned effort in order to undermine the command structure of the guard or reduce their ability to respond or throw them into disarray. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I think that that would work quite well as a plot. So what about you? What did you have? My one was a little bit more simplistic, Hmm. which was essentially that 
either the Adeptus Mechanicus or the Adeptus Administrum have got a bunch of new weapons and they want to test them out. And they choose your squad for whatever reason. Perhaps your guys have purchased peers amongst them or you've got a tech priest in good standing and you get a chance to try out some fancy new weapon which you're not normally going to get a chance to get your hands on. So this is the perfect opportunity for players to have a tinker with something they're not normally going to get to use. So maybe a normal Lehman Russ tank crew getting to play around with a Lehman Russ, you know, Plasma Annihilator, Vanquisher type tank. Or perhaps some really nice big guns, something like that. You give them a toy and you give them a target which isn't necessarily difficult, but they don't know how to use the tool they've got against the opponent they've got. Or maybe the tool they've got just doesn't suit the opponent they've got. Here you go. Here's some powerful las cannons. Now go fight against these orcs. You know, it doesn't really fit as weapon versus opponent, and it's a chance to try and see how the players use what they've been given. Or for a real GM dick movie, you could do the whole thing of, here's this super powerful weapon we need to test out, and they get into the field and use it, and it fails. Yes. <laughs> Completely fails. Yes. I mean, this reminds me of... Um, you ever played the old role-playing game Paranoia? Oh, yes. You know, yeah. and with Paranoia, you had this concept of the research and development division where your characters were constantly given things to test as such, you know. And I remember that they, I bought this set of carbon-papered uh, forms for Paranoia, and it had the R&D equipment test form. Yeah. And where the equipment has failed, it's like, please nominate who was at fault. And it's like all people that... It ne- never goes back to the person that designed it. It's always like the person that was using it, the person that issued it, the person that was being used on, that sort of stuff, you know. So. Yeah. <laughs> the orc's fault for not dying when shot. <laughs> exactly right, yeah. So, I mean, I think that would certainly work quite well with a group that has the Department of Munitorum influence oh, yeah. talent as well, you know, because yeah. it's like, yeah, yeah your, your special uh, notoriety with the Department of Munitorum has meant that they you've been put into this escalated trial basically so yeah and it's a chance to play around with something that they wouldn't normally use yeah, yeah. certainly if just go back to that that move as well if you were to be the sort of GM that did say okay here's this awesome piece of equipment and it doesn't work do yourself a favour and have it work at least once before it's no longer a story item yeah you know, otherwise the players are going might get a bit yeah we'll feel about. a bit ripped off yeah exactly you right. know, they get a conversion beamer they go out to test it out on some orcs and suddenly it doesn't work at all that's a bit slack but yeah. you know vaporise a whole bunch that's of it. orcs Does, first doesn't work suddenly a jacaro turns up fixes it and everything's good uh, <laughs> I, I think the other option is to give them just enough rope to hang themselves yeah. which is essentially it works fantastically and they go driving off into the orcs blasting orcs everywhere vaporising as many as they can and then it breaks down in the middle of the enemy army and they've got to get out with this thing without having this thing actually working properly yeah so you know that's it Okay. Alright then, so the couple of, couple of plot hooks this time, two for, for one. For one uh, yeah, I would have said save that for next episode so we don't have to think about it, but you know. Ah, I think we're better off doing two each episode now. <laughs> That's it, yeah. Okay. i got to say, I will say this on air that one additional idea I thought of, of for a, an, an extra segment, you know, if we don't have enough segments, would be each episode picking like a piece of gear from that setting and like something off the wall. 
Yeah. And just talking about some interesting piece of gear and interesting ways to use it as such. Yeah, certainly. Know, so. Yeah, we can do that. Yeah. All right. So we'll think about it for next future episodes. Okay. Yeah, next we've, we've set on air. It's... Well, we, we, we're going into Dark Heresy. So we're starting the cycle off again next episode. We'll yeah. go on from there. Okay. No worries. Mike's promised. There you go. Mike, you've got to pick something to Okay. Talk about. I'll pick a random piece of gear. Random piece of gear. <laughs> it will be a random piece no of gear. As long as the first only war one we do is the pen. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yes. All right. Let's move on. My lord. The information you requested is now available for your review. All right, so on to our review. Yep. And as I mentioned before, we're out of books to review for Only War right now. So we're looking at some other 40K properties, particularly those from Fancy Flight. And today we're going to be talking about Warhammer 40K Relic. Yeah. Now, it's worth knowing that Relic has already one expansion release, which is Nemesis. One more on the way, which is Halls of Terror. For now, we're going to focus just on the base Relic game. Okay, yep. Now... It's impossible to talk about Relic without first talking about Talisman. So, Mike, give it out. How do you feel about Talisman? Talisman is the perfect way to spend a weekend destroying friendships. Yes. I think, I think the last time I said to Mike, hey, we should play Talisman, Mike said, why, have you got too many friends? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, need, you, need, you need to lose some or something. Yeah. I mean, look, Talisman was really one of the very first... Talisman is Monopoly for nerds. <laughs> It was one of the very first uh, Games Workshop properties I ever played. You know, but back in the eighties, um, you know, a fantasy adventure game that developed into multiple board and box expansions. Yep, lots of material grew and grew and grew, and it was re-released. Well, it was first off initially by Black Library around the same time that Dark Heresy first came out. Yep, when Black Library sort of closed down operations. That obviously went to FFG. FFG also re-released it. And then Relic now is a is an alternate version of it. Some people call it Talisman in Space. Um, now, keep in mind, when I talk about Talisman, my experience of Talisman is limited to the old edition and the Black Library edition, which I own. I've never actually purchased the FFG edition because I bought the Black Library edition probably about a month before Black Library went under, or yeah. didn't go under, it was shut down operations. And I sort of felt a bit like, oh, I don't want to go buy the same game again. And there was actually an update pack that would let you update all the rules from the Black Library version to the FFG version so that when you can get future expansion FFG version, they would be compatible with what you already have. But at the end of the day, my experience was limited to the, the Black Library one. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of changes in Relic that I feel tackle a lot of the major issues that people have with Talisman. But before we get to those, let's let's assume for a second that the listener has never touched Talisman before, and just talk about what Relic is in and of itself. Primarily, the ga- the objective of the game is to reach the middle of the board. So the game itself is broken into three rings. So you have an outer ring, a middle ring, and an inner ring. And in the very center of the inner ring is the middle of the game board, which is effectively the winning space. Players start off in the outer ring, and as they progress through the rings, the game gets... Uh, more and more challenging so that you know it becomes a gamble of do I push too early and run the risk that I won't be able to compete with what's, what the challenge I'm going to face in the, in the, in the inner tiers uh, or do I wait until I'm well powerful enough but run the risk that somebody else might make that run towards the middle and get there first yeah um, now the old talisman game um, had the ability for players to attack other players so you can certainly fight monsters on the board or do things on the board but if you encounter another player you had the option of attacking them 
and if you beat them in a, in a combat, you could take, you could reduce their life, you could take their stuff, you know. There was certainly plenty of incentive for players to attack other players in Talisman. Yeah. And one of the big changes with uh, with Relic, of course, is that there is really no player versus player content. At the, at the end of the day, all of the characters in the base board game are Imperial characters trying to achieve the same final end. They're just trying to, just trying to be the one that achieves it first. Yeah. So there's really no, I guess, storyline reason for them to come to blows during the operation. Now, some characters do have special abilities which target other players. Maybe an ability to steal an item, for example. Um, but they are that, that is the extent of it. You can't land on the same square as another player and start beating them up. And of course, that is one of the things that affects the, the the length of a game because certainly, you know, in the old Talisman, you can get a character who is getting quite powerful, but a few bad rolls and combats, they're on low life, so another character runs along, takes their last life, they die and drop all their stuff there, and then it's a mad rush by everybody in the game to try and pick up all that character's Luke. stuff, basically, yeah. yeah. Um, that obviously won't happen in Relic as well. Um, now, the, the basic mechanic of moving around and improving is that you go to a square on the board... Now, most squares will have what they call a threat in Relic. Um, in Talisman, it was adventure cards, basically. But you draw cards that indicate what you encounter at that square. So that encounter could be enemies. It could be events. It could be an individual that's there that you have to deal with. It could be stuff that you can take, war gear, allies, etc. But you have to encounter the cards in a, in a given order. There is an order that works. So you can't just draw a Bloodthirster and a frag grenade and sort of pass the bloodthirst and pick up the frag grenade. You have to deal with the threat before you can pick up the loot, basically. Yeah, I think if a bloodthirst was guarding a frag grenade, it could keep the frag grenade. <laughs> Unfortunately, you've drawn a bloodthirst, you've got to encounter it. You, know. you can leave the frag grenade if you beat the, if you beat the bloodthirst up. <laughs> you have to pick it up. And in fact, there are limits. And that was... Okay, it's, that's an important point. Limits. Um, you had this tendency in Talisman to have so many followers and so many items, it was ridiculous. Characters have an asset limit in Relic, yep. which prevents you from picking up too much stuff, basically. Yeah. Um, so, at th- that point, so, so, you've got to, so you go around, you encounter threats. As you encounter threats, you when you beat opponents, you take trophies, and this is the way it's always been in Talisman. Um, and eventually you get enough trophies that you can cash those trophies in to level up. So, in the way it worked in the old Talisman was when you had seven total points of one attribute type, so say you had seven strength worth of monsters, you could trade those monsters in for one more strength point. Bit different in in Relic. You don't total up the monsters of a particular type. There are actually three attributes in Relic. So Talisman had strength and craft. Relic has strength, willpower, and cunning. Um, But when you take a trophy, all you need to get is six total of any ability to cash in when you cash in, you actually go up a level. So the characters have a leveling chart across the top of the sheet, which tells you each level, do you gain this attribute or this attribute? Do you gain more power? What, what do you actually gain, effectively? Yeah. So this is the other key point that actually improves the, the playtime of Relic, is that there was this horrible tendency in the days of Talisman for players to just play and play and play and play and play to try and get so much stuff that anything in the middle of the board was a complete cakewalk that was no, never going to be a threat to them, but it meant they, they'd spent the last six hours getting to the point they were ready to go there. Yeah. The, really? the, the way I always viewed it was 
the I think I mentioned it before the South Park World of Warcraft episode where essentially they spend you know if you grind enough boars yeah that's right you can <laughs> you can kill anything exactly yeah, yeah. Uh, so the way Relic controls this is the characters have a leveling system and when they hit the level cap that's it they can't improve any further so yeah, and, and certainly when you get to level cap most stuff in the middle is going to be not very much of a challenge for you yep but it's certainly a case of there is a, a defined end point as such so all that adds up to the fact that Relic really has a playtime of about two hours which for a board game I think is quite reasonable yeah you know I've played games like Blood Royale where the playtime was about seven weeks yeah I mean um, um, I think you, you've mentioned the two main problems I always had with Talisman which was too much PvP and too much time spent grinding garbage and having loads of gear and followers to the point where it gets confusing as to what you're doing that's it and with the removal of both of those aspects it makes the game actually playable that's it yeah so let's go through a few of the other key changes so um, one of the things they bring in Relic is something called scenarios so scenarios are basically when you reach the middle of the board so once the recommended base scenario is just first person who gets here wins yeah. Um, but there are five other or four other scenarios that are when someone gets here, something has to have to do something. You know, there is some further mechanic that um, effectively means that they don't just win that turn. You know, they are very close to winning, but if another character can get to the middle quickly, they may have it in them to actually take down the person who got there first. Yeah. And, and the game can still turn. And there's various methods of resolution and, and I guess this is also what was done originally with Talisman with the dungeon expansion where you had the different end cards and I, I remember one of my friends classic stories was I wasn't in this game but they were all playing original Talisman with all the boards it had been like eight hours they started in the morning it was now the afternoon they were literally sick of playing and one person was finally ready to go for the middle <clears throat> and everyone literally like we just want this game to end let's just stand out of his way and let him reach the middle he gets to the middle, draws the top card off the, the deck, and it's the Abyss. His character is instantly lost. All things, all items gone. And everyone was just like, that's it. I'm flipping the board and going home. So, <laughs> yeah. So the scenarios aren't that bad. They are all good resolution mechanics, interesting ways to, to end the game, basically. Okay. Um, now, they have done a few other changes. So, for example, instead of gold, you've now got influence uh, that you use to basically acquire items. And a lot of... A lot of monster cards in the game I've noticed, or threat cards, will have a... Um, uh, it'll say things... If, if you defeat the enemy in such a way, like if you have certain cards in your hand or you defeat a slightly higher challenge version of the enemy, you get influence points as well. So lots of... You're not just relying upon picking up the old bag of gold adventure cards from, from Talisman. There are plenty of ways to get influence. Yep. Um, you've also got um, charge icons now as well. So a lot of items you get will have a number of charges. So you might find like a piece of armor which has three charges. So it will give you three, the benefit three times, and after that it's discarded basically. So there are limits there. Um, you have missions in in Relic as well. So every character starts with a mission, and these will basically be methodology. Or they'll be you know go here and do this, and you get rewards for completing missions. One of the things that you're required to get in Talisman is a Talisman. Likewise in Relic, you have to get a Relic before you reach the middle of the board. And missions are a good way of getting a relic. You can cash in three completed missions for a relic, basically. Yeah. Um, I mentioned before there are the three attributes, so strength, willpower, and cunning. With most of the uh, spots you encounter on the board, it'll actually tell you what type of threat. So you actually have three different threat decks, one for strength, one for cunning, one for willpower. 
So rather than the old adventure deck where you, you know, your wizard with one strength and five craft could land on a space and pick up a seven strength dragon, um, here you would try and go towards squares that have, um, you know, that you are you are skilled against and such. Now that's not. There's no guarantee that if you draw a red card, you're going to get a red enemy. You know, you, there are some changes as well, but you are more likely to get that sort of threat from drawing from that sort of deck, basically. Yeah. There are a couple of things that make it quite hard. Like, if you draw a number of monsters, if those monsters are all of the same type, they combine together. So I was um, I was watching a YouTube game with it once, and someone's picked up, like, this Chaos Cultist card with a strength of one. But, um, like, this card's special ability is it increases the, the threat on that square by two reds. So suddenly they got to draw two red more cards, and they drew, like, two strength five demons. So suddenly... You know, they've gone from nothing to a strength 11 challenge as such. You know, and they were absolutely boned. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, which comes down to actually the resolution phase is a bit different as well. So normally in Talisman, you know, you have the monster there, you have your character. Each person rolls a dice, adds their relevant uh, stat, and highest value wins. There's a couple of different things in, in Relic. First off, characters will get what are called power cards. So power cards have various uses, but one of the uses is at the top of the card is a number. And anytime you would roll a dice for comet resolution, you can instead put a card on the table and that counts as your, your dice roll instead. And yep. normally the mechanic is that a per, the person to your left rolls for the creature. So you know at that point in time what the creature's total combat value is. It's their value on their cards plus their roll. You know your base value, so you can just put a, a power card which you know will win you that fight if you've got a power card that has a relevant ability. Secondly, dice explode. So sixes, you roll again. So even if you've got a strength of nine and you're up against a strength one cultist, there is still a chance that they will... Pull off a miraculous Miraculous win. victory, basically, that's right. So um, When it comes to losing the game as such, there are sort of, I guess, three states you can face. One is vanquished, that is your character has run out of life, in which case you just go to the uh, oh, it's a temple basically where your character reappears again having been healed, but you do lose something, some of the stuff you're carrying for example from that, but you're still in the game. There is corrupted, so certain events in the game can give you corruption cards, gain too many corruption cards and that character is removed from the game and you have to draw a new character to play with, you know that character can't return to the game. And finally eliminated. And usually you're eliminated when an event in the middle of the board says you are. So once a person gets in the middle of the board and starts killing characters, they can't just keep coming back. Yeah. But of course there is the option as well to eliminate yourself during the game. Actually in the rules it does say, you know, you can say, that's it, I don't want to play anymore, eliminate me. So... Okay. <laughs> um, so overall, I mean, like if you're a fan of Talisman, definitely play Relic. Because it is... Talisman reskin for the 40k, which is great in, its, in and of itself, but also refined. The, the rules refinements, the gameplay time, they are very nice. Yeah. You know, the artwork is brilliant on all the cards and on the board and all the characters. The characters feel nice and different, you know. There are no really broken characters like the old Prophetess from, from Talisman. Yeah. You know, certainly some have powerful abilities, but they are in some ways limited. Other characters have other abilities as well. So, you know, you'll get a different gameplay experience from playing each of the different characters as well. So, I think a lot of fun. I would definitely recommend it. We will talk about Nemesis and Halls of Terror in future reviews when we've got 
no books to review, but certainly as a base game, you know, it, it ticks a lot. Of, it ticks a lot of boxes for me. Okay. So yeah, to, you, haven't, you haven't actually played it. Have I you haven't mind? actually played it. No, I, I was just too turned off by past talisman games. Okay. So has my review swayed you around? Well, I suppose the main thing which makes me actually consider playing it is the fact that it's not going to take an entire weekend to play. Yep. And I'm not going to have to worry about getting into a bad fight, getting almost killed, getting picked off by another player, and then having to start all over again. Yeah, that's it. Okay, so it's not Talisman, and that's <laughs> good. But but it is also Talisman, which is good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's not the bad parts of Talisman, yeah, that's right, which yeah. is good. <laughs> but certainly, please, do check it out. It's a great game, and a great way to sort of have a bit of 40k play for two hours in an afternoon. It's, it's nice and quick. Okay. All right, let's move on. Yep. Ignorance is a blessing. The data you requested is unavailable. Right, so for today's final discussion, uh, we mentioned before that we had an email from one of our listeners, a gentleman by the name of Matthew Barr, who had a topic during our last episode, and I thought the topic was something that really bared a full discussion about. Okay. And and the basic topic was, I guess, player-made systems. So let's talk about Matthew's original email. Matthew is running a Only War game. Uh, his group in the game were a tank regiment. Yep. And because of a series of bungles and critical failures as such, the group had basically screwed up the mission on that planet um, and the Imperial Guard were in full retreat. They're like, you know, we are getting off this planet. There's too many orcs here. We just can't possibly hold this place. Yep. And his player said to him, no, we want to stay here and, you know, lead a few other guys to stay here as well and we are going to lead a battle of attrition a guerrilla war if you like against the orcs until such time as our forces can rally and return in greater numbers and he sort of thought okay well sure let's give this a go you know but the first thing he realized of course is that um they are a any any vehicle regiment you know is a supply heavy regiment you know it's not just in terms of food for the men but fuel for the vehicles ammunition etc and so he's thought, okay, well, they've lost their supply lines. Um, I can't just hand wave ammunition for their Lehman Russ anymore. We need to start thinking about how much they've actually got, and they need to be more strategic about it. And so he started coming up with this whole system to, man- you know, to manage how much gear have they got, how much food have they got. What about going out and scavenging for gear or for food? What about if they want to start trying to establish uh, like a farm or other thing of growing food in order to actually sustain their men? You know, what about the actual encounters they're going to do? That's not going to be a standard, you know, rolling fight like it was before. It might be more of a hit and run, for example. So um, he had all these various mechanics he thought, you know, I need to sort of produce. And that's what got him thinking and talking about player-built systems. There was no system in the book for this. Yeah. But the uh, the players would enjoy it more if there was something, if there was something to wrap the narrative around other than just arbitrary decision. Uh, and that's what really leads us into the topic. And... I guess what I want to start talking about is a concept that I know and love called the paper chase. All right, so um, I didn't get a chance to play any uh, freeforms or live action games when we were in the US last year, but I played a lot at Australian conventions. And the thing I find about these sort of stand-up games at conventions, because, I mean, I've, okay, so I played, for example, White Wolf, LARPs, outside of conventions that are ongoing where everyone has their character been playing for the past five years and it's a very social political game but when you're playing a stand-up character at a LARP at a convention 
chances are it's the one night you're going to play that character and you never play it again. Yeah. In which case, it's probably not that important in getting invested into the character's, you know, social and political drives. What you really want is the GM to give you a bit of paper which says your character wants this, 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 and this, and then your objective of that game is to try and achieve those various things. That's right. And, and often I've seen games where you are trying to get... So, so for example, we, we did a free form at a convention many years ago that was based on Frank Herbert's Dune. And uh, it was the concept of the various houses getting together to vote for a new person to manage Arrakis, basically. Um, and so each of the houses had to put forward their cases to the various voting councils, which included things like the Fremen and the the um, oh, the, the Guild, that sort of stuff, you know. And uh, what they were basically trying to do was buy votes. You know, the, 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 it, it wasn't a case of the person with the best case wins. It was, you know, it was a whole thing of, you know, assassination and backstabbing and bribery and such, you know. At the end of the day, the person with the most votes in their hand, I guess, won at the end of the game. You know, it, it, at, the end, at the end of the day, fun was the winner. You know, no, screw that. The person that, you know, that, that won the game was the person that got their, their thing over the line as such. So, and, and some players really like this. They like this whole concept that, um, you know, I've got a list of something I need, uh, and I want to get each of those things ticked off. Yep. Uh, and, and really that plays into this sort of concept is that there's no system that tells you these are all the things that you need to get and this is what happens when you tick them off. That is something that the GM and the players will often design together in an ongoing campaign like this. That a, I've been speaking for a bit, Mike. Is that you sort of, are, you, are, you, is this, are you picking up what I'm putting down? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It all sounds clear to me so far. The only, yeah. th- the only question I have is... If it was a Dune game, did it take 16 hours? Because if it didn't, it's not a real Dune game. <laughs> but, uh, I will say, one mechanic that the GMs came up with was um, some of the characters were addicted to spice. Yeah. And they one of the one of the GMs bought a 15-kilo bag of Jaffas. Yeah. And so any time people were supposed to have spice, oh. they'd pass around these, these Jaffas. And some people got pretty sick. By the end of the night, who weren't eat, 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 used to having 50 Jaffas in the night, for example. Yeah, yeah, so. okay. <laughs> in the end, there was still probably about 12 kilos of Jaffas left. You can sleep on that as a pillow, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, getting off topic here. Um, okay, so when you are going to put together your 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 system, so you're, the system is basically there to track something. You're either tracking resources or tracking kills or whatever it might be. You need to make a decision about is it best to be managed by the GM or managed by the players? Yeah. And the classic example that you always see for this is ammunition. You know, um, a number of guns in the 40K setting have limited ammunition. Some of them, like, say, a bolt pistol only has eight. You know, they can run that, that pretty quickly, especially when it's got an auto-fire mode as well, whereas LAS guns, which have, you know, 50 or 100 rounds, a lot harder to track. Yeah. So... Do you as a GM sit there and tick off a little sheet, everyone shots, and then when they go, I shoot at the demon, you go, ha ha ha, you're out of ammunition. You know, or do you just allow the players to track that? Or uh, The way I always look at this whenever it comes up, yep. if the players, in the sorry, if the characters can actually look, uh, gauge on their gun and go, oh, I've got 30 shots left, the players can track it. Yeah. If it's something like, how much range is left in this tank which has no fuel gauge because all it has is a little, you know, 
seagull of the of the ominous fire on it, and you know when that goes red, it means you've got no fuel left. There's not really a way of checking to know how much range they've got. The GM should track that. Yeah, so I guess this this is a point here where you could say either either could basically track this. E- either could track this. Um, I suppose it comes down to how much tension you want to create. Um, what the object they're tracking is, you know, if they're keeping track of how many eggs they've got in this box, they can just count them, you know, they can keep track of that. That's it. I mean, this really comes down to one of my favourite types of gaming, right? and this is what I call resources light gaming, yeah. which is where the characters in the game have limited resources, and now limited resources can mean one of two things. It can mean not much of what they need, or it can mean a, 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 a large but still finite amount with no chance of, of resupply. Yeah. So um, some years ago, you ran a uh, Twilight 2013, which is a sort of a post World War Three role playing game as such. You know, so players surviving in a post World War Three wasteland as such, and there really a lot of the game mechanic is built around scavenging. Uh, getting gear together, having enough food, having enough clean water, having enough ammunition for your weapons. And there, we as the players were really tracking what we had. You know, you'd say, here's a list of all the stuff that you find. But at the end of the day, you didn't keep necessarily a full log of what the players had because the players were keeping it. Uh, And we enjoyed that. We'd mark off food as such where we go and ammunition and everything. Um, And it was quite a... I guess a paperwork intensive task, but for me, I, I enjoy that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, years ago, I ran a, a convention game based on the film John Carpenter's The Thing, and it was supposed to be a horror game. And the game started off with the player characters being a group of, like a rescue group, being sent in a helicopter to the base from the movie where they lost contact with, and the helicopter crashed in heavy winds. So they're now several miles from the base. Some of the characters are injured, and I said, "Okay, here is a list of every single thing on the helicopter." You know, I, I worked out what would reasonably be in a rescue helicopter. Worked out what was damaged in the crash. Worked out what might have been lost or otherwise not there, and said, "Here is everything that's there, and here is a limit to what you can carry." So the first, literally, the first part of the game was the characters deciding what are we taking with us to hike the last ten miles to Outpost Thirteen or Thirty One, wherever it was in the film. You know, not realizing, of course, obviously that the outpost was had been burned down by the surviving characters of the film. Um, but of course, players who knew this was a thing game and had seen the film were like, "Got to take the shotgun." I'm like, "Well, you're in the Antarctic. What good's a shotgun?" You know, it's like you far enough. You're not even, even going to kind of pull the bears out here. You know, you'd be lucky if you find penguins. Uh, what could you know? But, but the, it's funny to see the players sort of rationalize, you know, what they may need or what they may not need as such. It was it was quite good and. and I think a lot of players got got a, got, a, got, a, got a kick out of that too. So yeah, uh, I think the resources light games can be a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I think in those situations, there's always going to be one player around the table who likes that sort of thing. And if that's the case, if it is just one or two players that like it, let them keep track of the paperwork stuff. They'll love it. Yeah. Um, if none of them do, then the GM's going to have to do it. That's it. That that player in games is me. I have to admit. So yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I like that sort of thing as well. So <laughs> it's, it's no problem there. Yeah, and of course the alternative to a resources light game is a resources heavy game, and this is usually a game where, say for example, um, you are running. Say say with only war, you've got a group where your players, for whatever reason, either because of kind of supply lines or just a very high logistics score, are now in charge of a large group of forces. So they need to decide any point in time 
what everybody else is doing. Yeah. So, you know, it's been all well and good to say, let's drive around the map, killing all the orcs and winning the day. But if you've got 15 Lehman Rust tanks in your group, you can maybe spread them out and get, get NPCs to do other things in, in different areas to achieve different ends as such. Yeah, so. and, and like you mentioned with the, the resources light system, it doesn't have to be, oh, you've only got, you know, 16 las guns amongst everyone. It could be you've got loads of ammunition, loads of guns, but you're never going to get any more, which means you actually have to keep track of it. And players will often, at first, just start willy-nilly wasting things until they realise, oh, wait, we're not getting any more of this. Yeah. And they're actually, I actually really like those sorts of games. Like in the, the, the Twilight 2013 game you mentioned, each character starts off with their own body-weighting gear, yeah. um, which is a lot of stuff. But that's it, because anything else after that, you have to hunt down and find or take from someone else. Well, I mean, certainly in that particular game, one of the things I realised early on was that the group at the start of the game had a truck. And a truck is a great way of moving a lot of gear until the truck's out of fuel. In which case, you know, there's a lot of gear there that's got to get left behind because we can't carry a truck's worth of gear with us. Yeah. You know, so it's very convenient until it's not. Yeah. Um... All right, so another type I wanted to talk about, and this is really what something we've seen in our friend Matt Lee's Black Crusade game, yep. which is player-based systems built around the concept of actions, and particularly limited actions. And once again, we're talking about something we mentioned in our last episode, which was epic campaigns. So say, for example, there is a significant period of downtime. Like you're saying, okay, so you guys have, have built this fortification, you've got your farms, etc., set up, you've got this amount of resources, you've got this many people, this many tanks... Um, okay, over the next week, give me three things that each person is doing each day. You know, so and you know, so that you, you might give them a whole bunch of actions. So actions might be, you know, farming to improve goods, scavenging, going out in the vehicle, patrolling, you know, patrolling on foot, um, recreation activities, recreation activities, yeah, to keep sane and sort of stuff, um, providing first aid, etc. All this sort of stuff, you know, you can basically come up with a system where you say, you've got this period of time, this many actions, here's a finite, here's a finite number, here's a whole bunch of stuff you can do, now you guys decide what you want to do. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of players quite enjoy that too. I mean, you've gone through that in Matt's game, have you? Because I think the first one we have, we only have one action, but now I think we've yeah, got a few we've more. Yeah, we've got three actions this time around. I've been thinking about what I'm going to do. Um well, there's three other characters in the game, so you can screw person one, then screw person two, then screw person well, the, three. The main because person, you are the betrayer, aren't you? <laughs> well, the main person <laughs> I'm screwing is actually um, an NPC. He's okay. just like the seneschal <laughs> on the ship we're on. But it's a minor thing. That's it. Um, all right, so another thing to think about when you want to actually do these player-based systems and you want to have things you want to track is, first off, how do you actually track it? Like, uh, So you know who's going to do it, but... Is it be written in a notepad? You know, are you going to use a service like Obsidian Portal where you can put in um, a list of items there, for example? Uh, is this going to be an Excel sheet? Are you going to share that around somehow using something like Google Docs? Um, what about when there is a difference between what the players know and what the GM knows? So it could be a case of you know, the GM says to the players, well, okay, you've got eight Lehman Russes here, but the GM also makes a note that two of them are unserviceable and will break down the next time they're taken out. Yeah. You know, um, going back to Twilight 2013, they had a system where any item had a... Wear. Had a wear rating between 1 and 10. And at 10, 
it was completely useless. And players could say, "What? How is it?" And all the GM would say is, "Well, it's well worn, bits are falling off it, you know." But they'll never tell you what the actual number is as such. Um, so there is certainly a benefit to with player based systems having a certain amount of GM only knowledge. And of course, what that leads to as well is misinformation. Is the GM may may specifically drop incorrect information in there that the players aren't aware of um, in order to create problems down the track as well. So say, for example, um, they send a group of men out on a uh, on a patrol and they come back and they've been under fire and they check the men out and they all seem good, but what they don't realise is that one of the soldiers is concealing a grievous wound. Yeah. You know, um, and so as far as they're concerned, this group is at full capacity, but when they actually go to deploy them again, they suddenly find that one of the men is slowing the group down, etc. You know, various things like that. So, yeah. I mean, Mike, you've created these systems in the past. So, any further advice you want to give on player-driven systems like this, as such? Um, I suppose the first thing is the only time you're really going to do this is when the players say this is what they want. Yeah. You know, sometimes you'll throw this sort of thing out on players just because. But if you're going to do that without them specifically asking for it, just do it for a couple of missions before you bring it back to the normal. If they've specifically gone out of their way to try and do this sort of thing, like in um, in, in uh, Matthew's yeah, yeah, situation with the supply yeah. lines being cut, they've specifically asked for it, then obviously that's what they want. Keep on doing it. Um, keep a good record of what they've got. Make sure you have an idea of what's going to happen when things start running out. What are you going to do as the GM when they run out of fuel? Because eventually they will run out of fuel. And always have an idea in place that, yes, they can get hold of most things. There's probably going to be some stuff that they just will not be able to get. Yeah. And those things, you've got to make sure that they're not really critical. You know, if they're fighting on a planet with limited atmosphere, making it so that the respirators only have so many oxygen cells and they can never get any more is just going to end the game at some point. Yeah. So you've got to make sure that whatever you limit isn't going to end the game when it runs out. Yeah. And if it does, there's plenty of chances to get more of it. And to be honest, I did check. I couldn't find anyone in Lexicana that tells what happened if you pour Amasek into the fuel tank of a Lehman Russ. Well, I can't imagine it would be anything good. <laughs> Anyways, hopefully that gives you some more ideas about creating these sort of systems for your game and, and having a bit of fun with your players in, as I call it, the paper chase. Yep. All right, let's move on. All astropaths in the choir chamber. Message incoming. All right, so before we close out the show, um, we normally do a bit of a community section uh, where we go through our reviews and any comments we've had. Nothing really major to speak of this time. We've had a few people on Facebook sort of give us a pat on the back and say thanks for the good work. So we always appreciate people saying that sort of stuff. So yes, um, yes. Indeed, thanks for that. What I will comment on, though, is that uh, during this last week, we put up a poll on our website. So given that um, I'm heading to GenCon later on this year, uh, we are we decided we're going to submit our podcast once again for consideration to the Any Awards for 2015. Yep. And we're allowed to submit one episode created between the start of May last year and the end of April this year. So... We went through and picked some of our favourite episodes and we're putting it to our listeners as to which one we should put forward to the committee for review. So yep. if we don't get through, we can blame our listeners. So yeah, please, if you have a moment, do jump on our website. We have summarised quickly the uh, the episodes there. 
and let us know which one was your favourite so we can put that one through for review by the committee. Yep. Now, if you do want to contact us, there's several ways to do it. Uh, you can go to our website, which is www.grimdartpodcast.com. We've got our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash grimdartpodcast. We've got our Google Plus page, which is plus.google.com slash plus sign grimdartpodcast. We've got our Twitter, which is at grimdartpodcast. Our email address is show at grimdartpodcast.com. You can find forums where we talk about our earlier episodes at darkrain.org slash community. We've got our voicemail link. So on our website, on the right-hand side, you'll see send voicemail. You can click on that and leave us a, a audio voicemail, which we'll play on the show and respond to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, don't forget, on our website on the left-hand side, we've got our affiliate link through DriveThruRPG. So, Mike, I can confidently say that with our affiliate link through DriveThruRPG and our now set up YouTube page, yep. we have earned just over $3. Oh, my gosh. That's it, yeah. So... <laughs> rolling in money exactly right yes mm-hmm. uh, so coming up in episode 36 uh, we're back around to talking about Dark Heresy 2nd edition yep uh, for our system we're going to talk about the social interaction system so the dispositions and such in Dark Heresy yep we're going on all about the Desperado yep uh, haven't yet got a system or setting discussion yet which we'll describe between now and then but we will be reviewing also Forgotten Gods Okay. So, looking forward to that one. Um, I, I'm quite enjoying the career discussions in Dark Heresy 2nd Edition episodes because we get right down into making characters as well. But uh, we look forward to seeing you then, Mike. Thank okay. you once again. Thanks very much. We will catch you next time. This podcast is not endorsed by or affiliated with Games Workshop or Fantasy Flight Games. Warhammer 40,000, Dark Heresy, Rogue Trader, Death Watch, Black Crusade, Only War, Eternal Crusade, and all associated properties are trademark and or copyright of Games Workshop Limited. Fantasy Flight Games is a trademark of Fantasy Flight Publishing Inc. All other materials are trademark and or copyright of their respective owners. All original content is copyright of the Grimdark Podcast. All rights are reserved by their respective owners. Our theme music comes from Mibios Musicali, music.mibio.com.